I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, unknown partisans bomb railway lines across Russia, the EU rebukes Germany for unilaterally pledging aid to Ukraine, and Russia bombards Ukraine with missiles and drones with strikes in Odessa and Kharkiv. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 17th of January, one year and 327 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, assistant comment editor Francis Durnley, and Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So Ukrainian forces shot down 19 of 20 Shahid attack drones launched by Russia overnight. That's from the Ukrainian Air Force this morning. The drones were launched from uh, Primorsko Akast. We've, we've dealt with that one before. It's on Russia's Sea of Azov coast. Air defense from Ukraine was in action across Zaporizhia, Mykolaiv, Odessa, Dnipro, Petrovsk and Kirovrad oblasts, that last one being right bang centre of the country. Through that barrage, or included in that, a Russian S-300 missile was fired into the centre of Kharkiv up in the northeast, killed one, injured at least 17 as part of the strikes last night. That attack on Ukraine's second largest city was said to have damaged at least 19 buildings. That's per Ukraine's emergency services on Telegram. They said one of the missiles, or that that missile has hit a a three-storey building that had previously housed a clinic. Then at around the same time, Ukraine shot down, well, sorry, around the the time that that these drones and the missiles were being fired, three people were injured in Odessa, 130 evacuated when uh, debris from the Shahids came down on residential dwellings. The armed forces of Ukraine's southern command said in a statement, the kamikaze drones entered at a critically low altitude from the Black Sea. Uh, Responding to that, Ukrainian MP Alexei Goncharenko said, a terrible morning in my native Odessa. Russian terrorists hit a residential area with Shahid attack drones. At least three people were injured. An entire district of Odessa was left without electricity and heat right in the middle of winter. However, also today, Colonel Yuri Inyat, who's the Ukrainian Air Force spokesperson, he said Russian Air Force operations over the Sea of Azov have decreased in the days after the shootdown of that uh, the A-50 surveillance plane or the airborne command and control plane and the Aleutian 22 airborne uh, command centre as well. Colonel Inyat said that Russia's tactical aviation presence over the region was lower than ever before. He said those two aircraft had been enabling Russia to detect air targets up to about 600 Ks, coordinating with commands in real time. Now, th- those the shootdown of those two aircraft, not expected to massively reduce the intensity of Russian missile and drone strikes on uh, across the country because they are not always they don't always need air coordination they can just be a lot of them are just fire and forget as the russians just lobbing them into into built up areas but it does mean that the i mean in particular the glide bombs that russian the sort of su-34 fighter bombers have been launching those kind of attacks will probably be dented somewhat at least in the short term 
Britain's MOD statement today, actually, the, the Defence Intelligence Update, was talking about the A50 and the IL-22 shoot-down. No, no new information as uh, in, um, above what we've been saying for the last couple of days. However, they did say they put a hard figure on the A50. They, they said there were eight left. Eight of those airborne, as I said before, they're the kind of they, they impose um, air traffic control in the sky, basically. So only eight of them left, which you should take probably five that would be serviceable at any one time and able to be crewed. So not many. Now then, in, into Russia, attacks continue there. Ukraine allegedly attacked the Russian border region of Belgorod last night with eleven missiles and six drones. This is coming from Moscow's defense ministry. They said it had shot down all of those, all of those uh, missiles and drones around three o'clock in the morning. Regional governor uh, Vyacheslav Gladkov said there were no casualties, but a number of residential buildings had been damaged. Then staying in Russia, interesting one, this railway tracks in three Russian regions have been blown up by unknown, quote unquote, unknown partisans. That's coming from Ukraine's military intelligence department. The sabotage attacks in the oblasts of Yaroslavl, that's about 200 k's northeast of Moscow, Nizhny Novgorod, about the same distance due east, and Saratov, 500 k's southeast of Moscow, that's near the border with Kazakhstan, was said to have paralysed lines being used in military logistics. The uh, military intelligence branch, the HUR, uh, Ukraine's HUR, said unknown opponents of Putin's regime once again burned several relay cabinets on the railway. You'll remember a number of other incidents in have impacted Russia's railway system in recent months, all linked to Ukrainian intelligence. You might remember in November last year, the HUR did claim responsibility for its role in a joint operation with local resistance that disrupted trains around Moscow. And then Ukrainian media... Uh, In late November, early December, they said that the security service of Ukraine, the SBU, had carried out two sabotages on the Baikal-Amur railway in Russia's Baratia Republic. That's right out in Russia's Far East, just north of Mongolia. I had a look at the Kiev Independent today, and they said that Russian railways had reported 14 freight train cars were derailed in the Far East, Russia's Far East, on January the 8th. And the day before that, there were reports of explosions at a railway track by an oil depot on the outskirts of Nizhny Targaland. That's an industrial city near the Ural Mountains, about 1,000 k's east of Moscow. So a lot of stuff happening. Uh, I mean, it's a big country, but there are signs there of discontent. Next then, NATO's top military official has demanded countries in the alliance undertake what he calls a war-fighting transition. So speaking at NATO's military committee, the alliance's highest military authority, as so this meeting today of chiefs of defence, NATO's chiefs of defence meeting today in Brussels, Admiral Rob Bauer said, we need a warfighting transformation of NATO. Admiral Bauer, who's uh, an officer in the Royal Netherlands Navy, the current chair of NATO's military committee, said the alliance must adapt to, quote, an era in which anything can happen at any time, an era in which we need to expect the unexpected, an era in which we need to focus on effectiveness in order to be fully effective. Which kind of, okay, maybe translation messed it up a little bit there. He said Ukraine will have our support for every day that is to come because the outcome of this war will determine the fate of the world. Okay, fine, we've heard those kind of things before, all, all good, heard them before. But he then went on, worth listening to this bit. He said the tectonic plates of power are shifting. As a result, we face the most dangerous world in decades NATO has entered into a new era of collective defence. Together we are defending much more than the physical safety of our 1 billion people and 31, soon to be 32, nations. We are defending freedom 
and democracy. So powerful words there, talking about the most dangerous world in decades, talking about a new era of collective defence. You remember NATO has come up with a new plan. I did a defence in depth video on this some well, a few weeks ago. NATO's scrubbed all its plans and really knitted them into each member state's national defence plan. So it's much more coherent. So that's the kind of context in which Admiral Bauer is speaking. He was speaking this morning ahead of the first meeting of the NATO-Ukraine Council in the Chiefs of Defence format. That's going to happen later on today, all the all the Chiefs of Defence. Valery Zaluzny will be addressing that, I think, by video link. And then just a couple more. Old friend Dmitry Medvedev, Deputy Chairman of Russia's Security Council, clearly having another totally normal one today. He posted on Telegram, the existence of Ukraine is deadly for Ukrainians, and I'm not at all referring only to the current state. I'm talking about any, absolutely any Ukraine, no matter how much they aspire to the mythical European Union and NATO, when choosing between eternal war and inevitable death and life. The absolute majority of Ukraine, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, yeah, just rambled on having a totally normal one. Enough of that. And then finally, as I look across at Francis Durnley and what will clearly come as a blow to the Durnley, Durnley enterprise, Tinder is going to exit the Belarusian market after Valentine's Day I don't know where you year. get this from, Dom. And anyway. that's it for me, David. Francis, I think you have right of reply there, first of all. But then after that, would you take us through the political and diplomatic updates, please? <laughs> Gentlemen don't need Tinder. Um, thanks, uh, David. The, this is obviously a significant week in the political realm with Zelensky at the Davos summit and a spat breaking out in Europe about military funding. Joe's going to talk more about both shortly. But first, I'll give the lay of the land. This is, of course, the first Davos summit where Zelensky has spoken in person, which is telling in itself. And as one might expect, he didn't mince his words. He continued to drum home the point that no peace with Russia is possible whilst it's still occupying large chunks of eastern Ukraine. I think him saying that is designed to rebuke those calling for negotiations. And also he attacked those who have not armed Ukraine due to fears about escalation. Before the full-scale invasion, he said, we constantly heard, do not escalate. We called for proactive actions, sanctions to prevent the expansion of war. After February 24th, nothing has harmed our coalitions as much as this concept of escalation. Personally, I think he's right. The fear of so-called escalation by Ukraine has served as a major impediment with regard to the types of weaponry it has received and perhaps even more crucially, the timing in which it has received those weapons that it has. The fact that Moscow has been able to escalate this war with apparent impunity, but Kyiv's hands remain tied in certain tangible ways in terms of the missiles it receives, for instance, is self-evident. The other priority for Kyiv is financial. Further to asking for further support, Zelensky has called for some of the Russian billions seized by world banks to be sent to rebuild Ukraine. As discussed, the G7 is considering taking only the rise in value and interest due since the assets were frozen. But Zelensky has told the BBC, who've written this up, that all of that money should be used. As the BBC writes, central bankers in Europe have concerns over undermining banks' safe haven status as they believe it could lead to unintended consequences. That may be true, but if the fear is what Russia might do financially in retaliation, I think Many experts personally would argue that if Russia felt it needed to raid Western investments in Russia, that it would do so in a heartbeat, hence Kyiv's frustration. 
Now, as regular listeners will know, and as Dom alluded to a moment ago, the major debate of the moment within the European continent, not just the EU, as it's also happening here in Britain, is how to respond to the threat of America withdrawing military support from Europe in the event of a Trump victory in the United States. Better late than never. In this context, the debate has echoes of the one we had at the very beginning of the conflict, namely whether defence objectives, including support for Ukraine, are better achieved through the centralised mechanisms of the EU or via individual countries doing their own policies. Now, I know some argue that those two approaches need not be mutually exclusive, and I believe that's true to a degree. But certainly there is a fault line here, as some countries feel the EU is too slow and too hamstrung by certain members being fearful about the aforementioned escalation of providing Ukraine with too much, say, in terms of weaponry. Now, originally, France and Germany were seen as such impediments in that context, hence why certain other countries decided to support Kyiv themselves rather than waiting for an agreed policy within the EU before acting. Some would argue that it was those packages of weaponry and support outside of the slower centralised mechanisms of the EU and perhaps even within NATO itself were absolutely essential to the holding of the city of Kiev. But that's a debate for future historians. What's interesting now, though, is that it is Germany and France who seem to be pushing to make agreements with Kiev beyond the mechanisms of the EU. Indeed, today, the EU has gone so far as to rebuke Germany for unilaterally pledging $7.6 billion in aid to Ukraine. Olaf Scholz made this promise yesterday and said the funds would go towards military and humanitarian aid. But Thierry Breton, the EU's internal market commissioner, has condemned this move because it will not go through the bloc's multilateral mechanisms. He said, today we see that Germany is trying to go solo. It hasn't fooled anyone. And in particular, it is trying to stop supporting the European peace facility. Germany has repeatedly urged other European countries to step up their support for Ukraine in recent weeks, though it's still not giving Taurus missiles, which is what Ukrainians really want. And this spat came as Emmanuel Macron announced France will sign in February a bilateral security agreement with Ukraine and supply storm shadow missiles and several hundred bombs. So what is going on? Perhaps Berlin and Paris believe the EU is being too slow or perhaps they want to appease political pressure in their own countries to do more. Perhaps it's more of an internal spat between the two countries. Another interpretation, and it'll be interesting to hear Joe's perspective on this, is that they are trying to provide alternative avenues for funding should the worst happen and that $54 billion aid package continue to be blocked by Hungary as well as enhancing the EU's negotiating hand when dealing with Orban. They would be able to say, for instance, look, Victor, your hand is weakening. We're trying to find other ways to support Ukraine. You may as well stop blocking these funds. Our current understanding, though, is that the EU is quietly confident that the package will be approved within a couple of weeks, according to Politico, with Hungary willing to compromise. Their report said officials are considering including the option to revise the funding in 2025 after Hungary demanded that the aid be reviewed every year. Who knows, perhaps some of the announcements by Berlin and Paris have played into that result. Relevant to all of this are the remarks of the Belgian Prime Minister Alexander de Croo giving a speech to Belgium's incoming presidency yesterday who warned overtly that Europe must be ready to stand alone if Trump returns to the White House. 
He said, if 2024 brings us America first again, it'll be more than ever Europe on its own. We should, as Europeans, not fear that prospect. We should embrace it, he argued, saying that Europe must become stronger, more sovereign, more self-reliant. As I say, this was obvious to many six months to a year ago, and it will be a race now to see how much Europe can show Russia it is willing to do more so that the relevance of America's support does not mean Kyiv and indeed Europe more widely is left naked. Had Europe mobilised in the way it pledged to from the invasion, the role of America would be far less relevant today and may also have had the added impact of shaping Putin's calculations. As things stand, because of that hesitancy to mobilise, Putin is able to play for time in the hope of a Trump victory. Latvia, we understand, is steering a coalition of Western countries to arm Ukraine with thousands of drones. Yesterday, its defence minister said the main goal is to do everything possible to ensure that as many of these drones are delivered to Ukraine. But there remains a fundamental question mark as to whether these kinds of donations, whilst important, would even come close to filling the void of a worst-case America scenario. It remains to be seen, very much a discussion of the moment. Well, thank you very much, Francis, for all of that. Joe, in your capacity as Brussels correspondent, can we bring you in here and just ask you for some of your expert thoughts on, as Francis put it, you know, what's going on? Why are France and Germany falling out with the EU at the moment? What's your reading of this situation? Yes, the Terry Breton comments, which were actually made on Monday, but have seemingly slipped through everyone's radar, are quite interesting in as such as I've, I've been speaking this week to multiple people in the EU circles, in NATO circles, about aid to Ukraine. It's, as everyone knows, is a big subject going into this. And I think if you were to sort of speak to some of the bigger donors, if you look at the Brits, the Americans, and they, they would be actually argued that Germany is doing just fine and France isn't quite pulling its weight. But these aren't going to be... These aren't going to be comments that are ever made in public. You're never going to get Joe Biden, Rishi Sunak, go and have a go at France. Even even when Olaf Scholz the other day encouraged EU members to do more, he did not name names or call out any names. You could just extrapolate who he was talking about by matching people's public commitments and their donations made in public to the size of their economy. Um, and this has seemingly pitted France and Germany together. We know France... Before last night, uh, before Emmanuel Macron announced that he would send an extra 40 scalp uh, or Storm Shadow missiles to Ukraine, which is worth about 55 million euros on our calculators. And he he said several hundred bombs, but he didn't tell us what bombs they were, so we can't really work out. Before that, France had donated around 540 million euros in military aid directly to Ukraine. That's bilateral, not through the EU mechanism before the start of the invasion. That's according to the tracker kept by the German think tank, the Kiel Institute. Whereas Germany has committed 17 billion, so a lot more, well, yeah, an incredible amount more. But I think what we have to remember here is Thierry Breton is the man who Emmanuel Macron sent to be a European commissioner. So he is simply defending Paris and what has become a, not, I wouldn't even call it a row, it's not that far gone yet. It's a slight exchange of words, exchange of ideas, a discussion that's probably being played out with uh, slightly raised voices about how whether how do you use the EU to gift weapons to Ukraine or how do you use bilateral? So the main reason for this is, and the reason for France's donations, bilateral donations being so small, is because they do the bulk of theirs through the EU pot. 
and they basically allows them to claim back um, a certain percentage of things uh, of the cash that they donate in weapons. So every time they send a send an artillery gun or something like that to Ukraine, they can claim back. It's it's, it's it varies between seventy five and ninety percent of the price of the weapon. Depends on market values, etc., and how easy it is to replace. So that's why their bilateral aid is very low. And currently on the table in the EU is this idea that there's going to be a twenty billion European peace facility. It's called where basically it would give Ukraine five billion a year in weapons over four years. But Germany has argued and is basically seeking to reduce its contributions to this fund. It argues that bilateral contributions to Ukraine should count against what is expected to be paid into the funds. Germany, as it stands, pays in a quarter of that pot. So it would be expected to pay five billion into the EU coffer, as well as what it does bilaterally. So basically Germany saying, look, we've already done our commitments bilaterally. Why should we also fund the EU doing it too? Well, EU member states, because essentially what it's being used, the pot's being used a lot is people sending their old Soviet legacy kit or kit they don't want anymore to Ukraine and then using the EU funds to buy new weapons for themselves, which is, I guess, plausible if you're a national military leader, but not something that other taxpayers would want to be spending on. But yeah, so that's, it's actually quite interesting. And so this is what a, an EU diplomat told our colleague, James Crisp, who has uh, done up the Thierry Breton quotes into a story today. And this diplomat said, a broader group of member states don't mind Schultz urging them to do more. That urging stings for France, which hasn't done as much. That is why Thierry Breton's rebuke has come. It's a defence of his national government back home. Um, yeah, but it's just it's just rather interesting to constantly hear these sort of bickerings about how do we do it. And basically, as well, you've got to look in the picture of France, Emmanuel Macron, Thierry Breton especially, wants to create the EU into an autonomous military power because it it understands that Donald Trump has made threats to leave NATO or leave basically not come to Europe's defense if it's attacked in the past so what is what is interesting is that basically Thierry Breton and Paris would like more to be done through through the EU so it it's built as a its own power rather than bilateral arrangements um, which then sort of is seen to fragment the block slightly But I'll stop on Cherry Breton and I will move over to Ursula von der Leyen in the Parliament this morning. Um, Francis alluded to the fact that EU officials have been confident um, about the 50 billion euro in financial aid plan for Ukraine, which again, this is not for weapons. This is a financial package, macroeconomic, basically to help keep Ukraine's economy afloat over four years. And it's made up of loans and grants, but as we know, Viktor Orban vetoed it at last month's summit, and EU leaders are going to return to Brussels on February the 1st to try and hash it out. So Ursula von der Leyen spoke about this in the European Parliament today, and she said she was confident that a solution at the EU27 level is possible. But, like fear not, there are being a few workarounds being dreamt up to get around Viktor Orban's veto. So we've, I've reported on them all before. They're not. There's nothing really new in this. One of them is an idea that you could have 26 member states club together to give Ukraine around 20 billion. That would only be in cheap loans and only last for a year. It works, but I, it's not ideal. It's not cast iron like the uh, 50 billion plan is. But I think the most prominent one, and Francis alluded to it, is basically coming up with some sort of review clause which allows Viktor Orban 
to return to and block aid in the future. So yes, essentially what it does is it throws a question into the future, but it basically allows Victor Orban to say, look, I'm, I'm happy with it now, but I've got the power to block it whenever I see fit. They basically probably hold it an annual review every every December European Council, or maybe they wait till the March European Council to do so. Um, so yeah, it's kicking it's kicking a question into the long grass. It does start unlocking funds for Ukraine. Ursula von der Leyen also mentioned in the European Part this morning some comments on the EU accession process for Ukraine, which we reported on and that was a great feat for Ukraine to achieve at the December European Council summit last year when they were granted basically formal accession talks. And Ursula von der Leyen had this to say, the people of Ukraine have fought hard to achieve this goal, not only on the battlefield, but also through the work of their democratic institutions. She added, it is in a matter of just a few months that they have been they have passed new laws to expand national minority rights, to improve the judicial system, and to ensure checks and balances on power. So yeah, she's basically saying that Ukraine has gone away, done its homework, and it's it, it, it's earned its right to, to have these talks. We're going to learn more about that in, um, in March, because there is a planned review of how far the homework has gone, because Ukraine still had a little bit more to do. It wasn't fully ready to start these talks, and they still have to... Basically, EU leaders have to hammer out some sort of negotiating framework to how they see fit to take in Ukraine. And yeah, I just think that's that's quite interesting because Ursula von der Leyen, when she was at Davos yesterday, was talking about how she thinks Ukraine can be victorious in the war. But we, as in the West, have to keep empowering their resistance. She's basically saying the Ukrainians need predictable financing throughout 2024 and beyond, and they need sufficient and sustained supply of weapons to defend their territory and regain what is rightfully theirs. So it's it's interesting that she's basically she's she's sticking away from the rows and the the link the sort of the jingoistic comments from Thierry Breton and basically saying, look, let's just doesn't matter how it gets there, but let's get it to Ukraine and let's make sure it's stable. She would ideally like everything to come through the EU because that's her job, but I don't think she's going to have too many complaints. And I'll stop there unless we want to go and speak a bit more about Davos. Well, thank you very much, Joe. Let's speak about Davos a bit later because I know basically, you know, the the Zelensky's um, keynote was happening just as we were on air, so we were trying to follow it and report on it while um, while everything was going on. But we'll come back to Davos, I think, with you, Joe, at the end. But Francis Sterling, I know you've got a few more updates to talk us through. Thanks, David. Yes, I just thought I'd touch on a few stories relating to the Russia context. I mentioned on Monday that North Korean representatives were meeting their equivalents in Moscow. And whilst I said then that it was unlikely details would be forthcoming, we have got several remarks which do indicate the direction of travel. Russia is developing its relations with North Korea in all areas, including those which are sensitive, the Kremlin has said. To quote it fully, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea is our very important partner and we are focused on the further development of our relations in all areas, including in sensitive areas. This is, of course, coming from, surprise, surprise, who else? Dmitry Peskov. Now, North Korea's foreign minister also lauded its ties with Russia yesterday and then held 
rare talks with the Kremlin directly and indeed with Putin in the room. Putin has also, we understand, been invited by Kim Jong-un to visit North Korea, although no specific timing on that and whether indeed it will uh, take place anytime soon, we just don't know. This happens at the same time as another interesting story, which has certainly caught the imagination of many on social media. So protesters have been detained by Russian police after an activist was sentenced to four years in a penal colony. He was found guilty of inciting ethnic hatred after he was accused of insulting migrant workers in a protest speech against gold mining in Bashkortostan, a region near the Ural Mountains. His supporters argue that the case against him is retribution for his role in protests that blocked proposals for a soda mine. Now, whilst this sounds very provincial, what is unusual is the degree of public anger. Police with riot shields were deployed after hundreds gathered to protest the sentence at the court in Baymak, a town 860 miles east of Moscow. Apparently, objects have been thrown, including snowballs, which can hurt, to be fair, um, and the context of this, as I say, is is quite complicated. That the leader of, of Bashkor, which is a movement sought to protect the region's culture, language and ethnic identity, was banned as an extremist organisation in 2020. So it seems that local supporters there have come out, as I say, to support him. But there are charges that this is political motivation coming from the centre. Some, as I say, particularly of the Ukrainian side, are saying that this is evidence that Russian society is fraying as a consequence of the war. Personally, looking into this this morning, I think that's a step too far. It sounds, as I say, quite localised. But nevertheless, such images are unhelpful for the Kremlin prior to these so-called elections. And certainly, given the international context where Moscow is trying to put forward the image of it being a united country in contrast to a disparate, chaotic West. but. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Suffice to say, we will keep an eye on it. Thank you very much, Francis. Uh, Joe Barnes, very quickly, would you sum up anything we missed, you think, from Davos uh, yesterday? And then let's uh, go to our final thoughts. Yeah, I just um, a few comments on Zelensky's speech and Q&A. Actually, he looked quite relaxed. I, I so I remember seeing him, he came, he sort of rushed to a NATO defence ministerial meeting shortly after the um, Hamas-Israel war broke out. And he looked nervous, he looked panicked, he, he looked stressed. But now he was actually joking and laughing on stage, obviously. He is a comedian by nature, by a previous job as well. But he just seemed, he just seemed a lot calmer. And there was one thing that really caught my or attention, I would say I, but I was uh, listening to it as well, was uh, some comments he made about Donald Trump. And he said, look, if Donald Trump can end the war, that's great, but it, he basically alluded it has to be on our terms. But he was basically just saying, look, it doesn't matter if Donald Trump comes in. He might cut aid to Ukraine, but that's if you, Vladimir Putin agrees to stop the war and Ukraine carries on fighting. But he also said then... Donald Trump could also send Ukraine more weapons than ever before um, and 
really ramp up aid if Vladimir Putin doesn't agree to sit down and hammer out a peace a peace deal. So there's there's it's sort of not all hope lost. Vladimir Zelensky seemed a bit calmer and I won't say happy because he's obviously going through an existential crisis for his country and leading to the best of his ability. But it's, he just seemed calmer yesterday, which I I thought was interesting. Well, thank you very much, Francis, Joe and Dom. Let's yeah, thanks, go to David. our final so thoughts I then. Dom Nichols. Russia is said to have imported £2.3 billion worth, that's about £2.9 billion US dollars worth, of components from Western companies for, for arms in the first 10 months of last year, despite the sanctions. This comes from the office of President Zelensky. They said the products of more than 250 Western companies were found in samples of destroyed or captured Russian weapons. Now, the figures come from research by a working group led by Andre Yermak, who's Mr. Zelensky's chief of staff, and Michael McFall, the former US ambassador to Russia. So, not good. You'll remember that, that very good report uh, just before Christmas from the Financial Times looking at how Russia is trying to get around the sanctions regime, and many countries are complicit in that. Uh, so, it is an ongoing um, problem. It, it always will be. I mean, there's, there will always be efforts to do this. It, is, it will be an ongoing problem. I just note, though, I just when I read that, I just thought of the experience from the Second World War of the SOE, Special Operations Executive, that I speak about you know, quite, quite a lot. But they, they were very good at interdicting these, these supply lines into the, the German uh, system. Both, For example, they, they put itching powder into French soap products that went into the laundrettes that were used by... German troops and, and Gestapo and what have you, and that you know that's just very annoying. It was all to you know, dent morale and what have you. But they're also very good. The SOE were very good sabotage methods, such as they put they fed lubricants into the German logistics system that were laced with grinding materials that would then get into vehicle oil systems and muck up the engines. They put explosive material concealed in coal. They'd make fake coal with explosive inside. So when that coal was shoveled into the the engine of a of a locomotive and you know, obviously heated up, it would explode. So all these things were very ingenious. They also had landmines disguised as cow dung. So you know, drive over one of those, and boom. So very very clever ways of doing it. And I just wonder if, as well as trying to sh- shut down this the route of Russia maintaining or trying to maintain the supply of sophisticated Western components, I just wonder if there's some thought or some organisation somewhere that is actively feeding this and working with the grain of the problem and feeding in just dodgy stuff. I'm thinking, you know, think about Stuxnet and all that kind of stuff, but just feed in what they want to see, what they, what they expect to see in the right quantities, in the right place, the right time, but it just doesn't work or it goes bang or it does something else, like says where it is and where it's come from. I just hope that somebody with you know, wet towel around the head right now is thinking about these difficult problems and coming up with ingenious solutions. Thanks, David. Thank you very much, Dom. Now to the person with the sharpest suit in Studio 2, Francis Sternley. Oh, that's very kind, David. I always admire your suits as well. I thought Dom was very mean about them last week. One of the most interesting aspects of this war, when measured in the grand sweep of history, is the gradual but significant impact in, that it's had on how Central and Eastern European countries, especially those formerly within the Soviet Union, assess their Soviet past and indeed their relationship with Russia today. And in that vein, a couple of interesting stories from our friends in Estonia, where its internal security service has detained a Russian accused of spying for Moscow, with media reporting the suspect was a university professor. The government have said, and 
find it interesting the terminology they use here. The aggressor states intelligent, intelligence interest in Estonia remains high. The current case is an addition to more than 20 earlier ones and shows the desire of Russian intelligence services to infiltrate different areas of life in Estonia. Now, furthermore, Estonia will stop funding Russian language education. The Estonian parliament has announced intending to switch to a unified Estonian language education system, which means it will no longer dedicate funds towards supporting Russian language schools. They say it's written in the constitution. The state language of Estonia is Estonian and everyone has the right to study in the Estonian language. This is coming from Kaya Kallis, of course, the prime minister, adding that Estonia has no desire to Russify the state's children. Listeners will recall that Estonia began transitioning toward a unified Estonian language education system in December 22, following the implication of a new bill that aimed to reduce the number of schools in the country teaching primarily in the Russian language. But that full transition is expected to be finalised by 2033. But nonetheless, these steps are being gradually taken. When we assess the impact of this war in the coming decades, it's these kind of shifts further to, say, Sweden and Finland joining NATO that will be among the most consequential. And I think it's just important that when we inevitably have to focus very much on the narrow day-to-day events taking place on the front line and in the political context, that we don't lose sight of the big picture trajectory of this war, which is still leading to a severance within Europe from Russia and its influence of the 20th century. Very, very interesting, extremely relevant, of course, in the Polish context as well and various other places. And I think it's yet another signal, really, of the degree to which this war has been a disaster for Russia in terms of its projected influence in the European context. But of course, there's still very much a long way to go on every front. Thank you very much, Dom and Francis. Joe Barnes to finish today. Yeah, I just wanted to go back to Admiral Rob Bauer's comment, uh, what's the amusingly named uh, acronym CHODS, um, the Chief of Defence Staff meeting at NATO. Um, and yeah, he's, he's talking about sort of we need to be on a war footing, we need to be on a war footing. This, But this is a, a message that we've been hearing a lot from Western leaders and Western powers for months now. So even Ben Wallace, before he departed the UK's Defence Secretary, was saying that we're living in the most unstable decade ever or something since the Second World War. And that was that was months ago. That was before... Hamas launched its terrorist attack on Israel, and Israel then launched its retaliatory invasion of Gaza. It's before the Houthis, it's, but it wasn't after, obviously, Russia had invaded Ukraine. It's just, um, we, we, it's just, it's almost a, rather than a last fault, it's a, 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 a last gripe. We just don't seem in the West, unless we're actually doing something that it's not automatically clear and being hidden from prying journalists. We just don't seem to be responding to this idea that we actually need to sort of ramp up into some sort of war footing, whether it be really ramping up our production lines. We've failed, the European Union failed in delivering a million artillery shells to Ukraine as promised and planned. They've got until March to do that, and they were about 300,000 through on last count around December. While Russia has been pumping out and putting 40% of its annual budget into defence and sort of really trying to become a, a world power. And I'd, I'd suggest sort of going through a thread recently by Fabian Hoffman, who works at, um, is a studier of nuclear war from Norway. And he, he was he was saying that, look, Russia is probably going to be able to get back the ability to strike 
a NATO country at some point. It might not come as a ground invasion. It would probably be using strategic or tactical um, strikes on critical infrastructure, civilian targets potentially. But it will also then test the resolve of the West. And it's something that I just don't think we've really got to that stage where we have the resolve to really go on to a war footing and look the danger in, in the face as it is. But yeah, that's my final gripe for the day. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, a world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.